In this episode of Read Me a Story, we are continuing our journey through Precious Time by Erica James, with Clara and Ned now back on the road in Winnie, their camper van. Leaving Deaconsbridge was hard for them, having both become so attached to Gabriel Liberty, but new adventures are in store for them as they pick up their adventure. Chapter 37 9th of April Dear Archie, Apologies for sneaking out of town without saying goodbye. Ned was so upset about leaving Mermaid House, I thought it better to keep the farewells to a minimum. As you can see, we're in the Lake District now. Weather damp, scenery stunning, people almost as friendly as those in Deaconsbridge. Thanks for all your help at Mermaid House. Regards, Clara and Ned. P.S. What happened to the posse? 10th of April. Dear Louise and Associated Ravel, The hardship continues, currently languishing beside beautiful Lake Windermere with Miss Tiggywinkle and chums and getting fat on cream teas. Tomorrow we're going in search of lonely clouds and hosts of golden daffodils. Sorry, I still haven't got around to phoning. We'll try to mend my ways. Do hope you're all behaving yourselves and missing us terribly. Love from Clara and Ned. P.S. Happy Easter. 11th of April. Dear Mr Liberty, just to prove we keep our promises, Easter greetings from Dove Cottage, the home of William Wordsworth. Maybe you should pen a few lines of poetry and open Mermaid House to the public. I'm sure you'd love thousands of tourists tramping through your home. Think how rude you could be to them. Ned says thank you very much for the money you gave him. That was very naughty of you, slapterists, but very kind. He's used some of it to buy himself a pocket-sized Peter Rabbit. Take care, Ned and Miss Costello. P.S. Have you advertised for a cleaner yet? Bates and Hardy, Willits and Co. Chartered Accountants, Dean Street, Manchester, M10 9PQ. 16th of April 2001, dear Casper. Re tax return, C Liberty. Please find enclosed copy of latest letter received from the Inland Revenue. In view of the claims made, I suggest we meet and discuss the matter so we can devise some sort of strategy that will satisfy our friends at the IR. Regards, Harvey Wilson, 2 Canal View, Manchester. 21st of April. Dear Damson, what the hell's going on? Why won't you speak to me? Five times I've tried to get you on the phone, and on each occasion some guardian-reading, bean-eating, beardy type has told me it's not convenient. Since when is it not convenient to speak to your brother? Or is this all part of the brainwashing process that's going on up there? Damson, surely you can see what's happening. Divide and conquer is how these cults operate. They isolate you from those who care about you, telling you it's for your own good. If I don't hear from you soon, I will personally come up there and beat the out of that patronising wimp of a man who won't let me speak to you. Casper. P.S. How much money have they stung you for? Rosewood Manor Healing Centre, Blydale Village, Northumberland. Saturday, 26th of April. Darling Casper, if you really care about me, don't be silly and drive all the way up here just to take out your frustration on poor Roland, who is neither vegetarian nor the wearer of a beard, and he certainly doesn't read The Guardian. Instead, why don't you write and tell me what's wrong, and please don't deny that there is anything bothering you. As twins, you know I always feel it when something is wrong with you. Love and warmest wishes, Damson. 27th of April. Dear Louise and everyone, 
Here we are, north of the border. Glasgow is terrific. Moira, you'd love it. More designer shops than you can shake a stick at. Wall-to-wall Rennie Macintosh stuff as well. Though I'm not sure Ned shared my enthusiasm for it. Tomorrow we're setting sail for the bonny banks of Loch Lomond. Rob Roy country. Och, I the new, Clara and Ned. P.S. It was great to speak to you on the phone last week, Louise. It almost made me miss you. 28th of April. Dear Mr Liberty, saw this wonderful card of a fierce-looking Scotsman playing the bagpipes and thought of you. Ever thought of dyeing your hair red? Hope you're taking care of yourself and haven't slipped back into your bad old ways. Best wishes, Ned and Miss Costello. Bates and Hardy Willits & Co. Chartered Accountants, Dean Street, Manchester, M10 9PQ, 1st of May 2001. Dear Casper, re tax return, see Liberty. Once again, I enclose a copy of the latest communication from the Inland Revenue. As you can see from the detailed documentation, they leave us with little choice or room for manoeuvre. Kind regards, Harvey Wilson. To Canalview, Manchester, 5th of May. Dear Damson, I would much rather discuss this over the phone or even face to face. Please let me speak to you, Casper. P.S. I might have guessed his name was Bloody Rowland. Rosewood Manor Healing Centre, Blydale Village, Northumberland, Monday 5th of May. Dearest Casper, so much anger. Please, just tell me what's wrong. Thinking of you, all my love, Damson. 17 Cross Street, Deaconsbridge, 7th of May. Dear Stella, before the solicitors get too carried away with their expensive games, why don't we meet and discuss matters in private, just the two of us? It's the least we owe each other. Yours hopefully, Archie. P.S. We don't have to meet in Deaconsbridge if you don't want to. You choose. 2A Carlisle Terrace, Macclesfield, Cheshire. 12th of May. Dear Archie, I could meet you a week next Tuesday after work in Buxton, but only for a short while. I'll see you six o'clock by the bandstand. Stella. Date 1405.01. 14.44 GMT, daylight time, from claracost at hotmail.com to guyxxx at phoenix.co.uk. Hope I'm in luck and that you're sitting in the office twiddling your thumbs as you always used to. It had to happen sooner or later. I found myself in a cyber cafe in the middle of Edinburgh, emailing you, silly boys. How goes it? Who and what is the latest gossip? Don't hold back on the dirt. Date 1405.01, 14.49 GMT, daylight time, from guyxxx at aol.co.uk to claracost at hotmail.com. Hey, Clara Bell, is that really you? This is like old times. Makes me realise how much I miss your sharply worded emails. I'm working from home today so we can gossip quite freely. No chance of the surfing police earwigging. We have it on good authority, David, that the big chiefs in Wilmington are dispatching a couple of their smart alecky types to suss out the takeover. Les Francais garçons are definitely putting their francs on the table, so it's all systems go. Not that anyone is supposed to know this, of course, but I don't need to tell you that it's been common knowledge here for some time that the plant doesn't fit in with the strategic direction of the CEO's thinking. And guess who's coming to see us? None other than the big honcho lawyer himself, Fenton Bexley. 
and the stellarated finance director, Todd Mason Angel. Aren't we the lucky ones? Fundus etc.'s guy. P.S. Didn't you get to know TMA during your stint in Wilmington? What's he like? Is he likely to drive the women on the packing line mad with desire? You know what they were like with the last blue-eyed wonder boy who crossed the water to see us? Sexual harassment didn't come close. Chapter 38 It was five weeks since April had received the first of the postcards from Ned and Miss Costello, and he had kept each one they had sent. He had them carefully lined up along the kitchen window sill, and every day around twelve o'clock, when the postman finally got round to making a delivery at Mermaid House, he hung on to the hope that there would be a new addition for his collection. It was a mild sunny morning in May, and he bent down to gather the scattering of envelopes that were spread so far and wide that he wondered if the postman made a game of firing the mail through the letterbox to see how far it would go. Once again, there was no card, and he tasted what was now the familiar bitterness of disappointment. Silly old fool, he berated himself. Get a grip, man. But then, hiding beneath a buff-coloured envelope addressed to the occupier, he glimpsed a flash of blue sky. The pendulum of his emotions swung from disappointment to delight. Without looking at the card, not wanting to spoil his enjoyment of it, he took it through to the kitchen where he dropped the buff-coloured envelope into the bin. Next, he scanned his monthly bank statement for any anomalies, threw away a book club offer and the chance to take out a £15,000 loan, then got down to the card, drawing out the process slowly, wanting to make it last. The glossy picture showed a busy harbour, there were fishing boats, large and small, steep rows of terraced houses with red pan tiled roofs and the ruins of an abbey on the distant cliff. He recognised it instantly. It was Whitby. How well he knew it. For three years running, his father had taken him there when he was a boy, just the two of them. They had stayed in the same modest boarding house each time and always in the first week of August. The routine never varied. Fishing in the morning, lunch overlooking the quay, and the afternoon spent going for long, invigorating walks. Seventy years on, he could still hear his father's voice booming above the crashing waves on the rocks below them as they marched along the cliff. Come on, Gabriel, keep up, no lagging behind. The last time they had made the trip, he had fallen over and cut his knee on a rusty tin, but he hadn't cried, hadn't wanted to make a fuss. His father wouldn't have tolerated that. It wasn't until they were at home two days later and he woke in the night with a thrashing fever that, in, that had induced nightmares of goblins chasing him over a cliff that he allowed his mother to look at his leg. Straightway she called the doctor. The gash to his knee was infected and his temperature was soaring dangerously. Gabriel turned over the postcard and smiled. Miss Costello had written it, but Ned had added his own name and his topsy-turvy, oversized writing was thrown across the bottom of the card like tumbling building bricks. Gabriel read it through once more, then placed it on the windowsill. But, unlike the rest of the postcards, he positioned it so that the writing faced him. And while he made himself an early lunch, hacking at the remains of a loaf and adding a slab of Wensleydale to the thick hunks of granary bread, he continued to stare at Ned's handiwork, picturing the lad in the camper van, leading up to the narrow table, his fingers gripping the pen, his hair falling into his eyes and his tongue poking out at the corner of his mouth as he concentrated. 
the thought of Ned's determination and the attachment he seemed to have made to an old man he scarcely knew caused Gabriel to stop chewing his sandwich. His shambly. A few moments passed before he could swallow what was in his mouth. If someone had told him two months ago that he could be so moved, he would have laughed in their face. But every time he thought of Ned, he experienced a tightening in his chest. And if he pictured that moment in April, when the boy had tried to say goodbye to him, he felt overwhelmed by sadness, so heavy his breath caught. It happened to him now, made him feel as if his heart had just been torpedoed. On impulse that day, he'd carried Ned round to the front of the house and together they had sat on the curved stone bench beneath the library window. I don't want to go, the poor blighter had sniffled, rubbing his sleeve across his face, his legs swinging. I like it here. Nowhere will be as nice. The plaintive note in his voice had cut right through Gabriel. Now that's where you're wrong, Mr Smarty Pants, he had said, putting an arm round him and tucking him into his side. He was so small. Do you think your mother would take you anywhere she thought you wouldn't like? No, of course not. She's much too good a mother to do that to you. Ned had wrinkled his nose. I wish you could come with us. I asked Mummy if you could, but she thinks you'd snore and keep us awake at night. Laughing, he had said, your mother's a very wise woman. But Ned, and you must promise to keep this under your hat. It's not something I want everyone to know. I'm too old for travelling. I know you're very old, he had said, so solemnly it had made Gabriel want to smile. But you wouldn't have to drive. Mummy would do all that. And she has enough on her hands without having me along for the ride and getting in her way. Now then, dry your eyes and promise me one more thing, that you'll look after her. When you're older, you'll discover that the people who least appear to need help are those who need it most. Do I get a hug goodbye? Ned had squashed himself against Gabriel, burrowed his head into his neck and held on to him tightly. Even now, all these weeks on, Gabriel could smell the sweet warmth of the boy and the bubbling sense of energy within his little body. It was a happy memory, but at the same time it made him feel low and weary, and so very alone. The emptiness of the house, the deathly quiet of it, had never seemed so oppressive as it did now, and that was with Jonah constantly making a nuisance of himself. Solitude had never bothered Gabriel in the past, but now he wanted none of it. He craved the sound of a small child's excited voice calling to him, the hurried, purposeful footsteps of a young woman, the crisp, humorous taunt, the robust, mocking smile. But he knew he could crave those things all he wanted, and he would never know them again. Through the window, beyond the courtyard, he watched a kestrel hover hovering on the wind, its wings beating the air. Seconds passed, and then it was gone, attracted by something a long way off. Oh, how he missed that little firecracker and her son. It was against school policy for a member of staff to visit a pupil at home on his or her own, especially if the pupil was a girl. So Jonah had wisely enlisted the help of Barbara Lander, an experienced seen-it-all-before geography teacher, to help him get to the bottom of why Shana Powell was missing from school yet again. He had a pretty good idea of what was going on and had decided it was time for him to put in a personal appearance. He was taking this slightly unorthodox approach rather than bringing in the Education Welfare Service because, rightly or wrongly, he believed he could resolve the problem. 
In his opinion, it was all too easy to pass on the difficult children to a higher authority and wash one's hands of them. But he didn't think that was the way to improve the pastoral system at a school like Dick High. The Powell family lived on the same estate as Jay's O'Dowd, along with the majority of the kids at Dick High. But unlike most of the others, who occasionally stayed away from school for the hell of it, he was certain that Shana's frequent absences were due to a more worrying influence than mere peer group pressure to bunk off classes. Parking outside number 23, Capstone Close. Predictably, the letter R had been inserted with a black pen into the road sign. Jonah said, Thanks, Barbara, for doing this. I appreciate your help. No problem. Just don't be too hopeful that we'll get anywhere. If it is the mother who's deliberately keeping Shana home, our presence is likely to be inflammatory. I know, but it's worth a try, isn't it? Barbara slipped her bag over her shoulder. As I said earlier, I'm going to leave you to do all the talking. This is your show, and if you can't charm this particular birdie down from the tree, I don't know who can. He shoved open his door and got out. What's that supposed to mean? She looked at him over the top of the car. Don't sound so shocked. It's common knowledge in the staff room that your crusading techniques leave the rest of us standing. Must be something to do with that fine-boned face of yours and the disarming boyish smile. Takes the little sods by surprise, makes them want to help you out. The old dragons like me only get results by beating them into submission. I'm just pleased you picked me for this assignment because I'll get to observe you in action and at close range. I had no idea I was such a focus of attention, he said dryly. Come off it, Jonah. Surely you know that everyone in the staff room calls you Walker behind your back. Walker? Yes, Walker as in crisps, as in potato chips, as in... Mr Chips. He finished for her. Great. Just what I need. A sobriquet from the dark ages. She laughed. Do you want to know what's also being said about you behind your back? In or out of the staff room? She laughed again. What the hormone charge girls say about you is unrepeatable. But it's hotly rumoured in the staff room that you're going to be put in charge of the sixth form in the autumn. You're kidding. Nope. At the rate you're going, you'll be Dick High's very own Moses, parting the waters with a flick of your angelic curls. Don't frown like that, Jonah. It spoils the whole effect. You can't be a shiny-eyed enthusiast with stress and worry lines like the rest of us. The Powell's semi-detached house was as run down as the neighbouring properties. The fascia boards needed replacing, the windows were filthy, the neck curtains were torn, and the overgrown front garden was a dismal sight home to a tangle of two dismantled motorbikes, several burst bags of cement and a supermarket trolley minus its wheels. They picked their way through the debris and knocked at the door. It was ajar and Jonah could hear the sound of a television from somewhere within. He knocked again, louder this time. The volume on the television was turned down and a woman's voice shouted, Get that, will you, Shah? Hello, Shana, Jonas said when the door opened fully to reveal an overweight girl with a pasty complexion that flushed ten shades of red and clashed with the skimpy purple halter neck top she was wearing. The lower part of her was covered, just, by a crotch-hugging skirt and as if to lessen the effect of so much exposed thigh, she tried to hide one leg behind the other. Sir, what are you doing here? I might ask the same of you. Okay, if we come in. 
Reluctantly, she took them through to the back of a small house, to the kitchen. Next to a steaming kettle, there were two full mugs of coffee, an opened jar of Nescafe and a carton of long-life milk. As well as the aroma of instant coffee, there was a less appetising smell that came from a gas cooker, where a charred grill pan contained a blanket of solidified cooking fat. It looked as if it had been used many times. Blackened scabs of burnt food poked through its hard, rancid surface. With some of her 14-year-old spirit returning, Shana said, Not expecting lunch, are you, sir? No, but I am expecting a good reason for why you're not in school again. It's me asthma, same as before. She gave her substantial shoulders a heave and produced a corroborative cough. Then perhaps you ought to cut back. His gaze fell on an overflowing ashtray on the draining board where two packets of frozen sausages were defrosting. I've given up. It's only mum and me brothers who smoke now. Good for you. Is your mother in? He saw her hesitate and knew he had put her on the spot. Um, she's not well, sir. She's having a lie down. She's probably thirsty too. Shall we take her coffee through? It seems a shame to keep her waiting. And before she could stop him, he picked up one of the mugs, went back to the hall and opened the door of what he assumed was the front room. The air was blue with the fog of cigarette smoke. An enormous television with a china dray horse on top of it squatted in the furthest corner of the room. John Leslie was putting a contestant through the rigorous hoops of Wheel of Fortune. And about time too, how long does it take to boil the kettle and make us a drink? Who was that at the door? Go on, mate, spin the bloody thing. The voice was thick and husky and emanated from a woman sitting on the edge of a PVC sofa that crackled with her agitated movements. Shana's mother was a larger version of her daughter. The pasty complexion and the broad shoulders were the same, as was the shaggy permed hair. Mrs Powell? She swivelled her head and looked at Jonah with breathtaking hostility. Who the hell are you? I'm Mr Liberty, your daughter's form teacher, and this is Mrs Lander, a colleague from school. He handed her the coffee and, uninvited, sat down beside her. If it's not inconvenient, he said, we'd like to discuss why Shana is absent from school so often. We're very concerned for her. You see, every day she misses puts her at a disadvantage with her GCSEs, and that strikes me as a great shame given her ability. Mrs Powell shifted forward and reached for her cigarettes. She flipped open the packet, took out a Marlborough, hunted for a lighter among the mess on the table in front of her. It's her asthma. How many times do I have to tell you lot? She found the lighter and lit the cigarette. Inhaling deeply, she stared him in the eye, her expression sullen and challenging. What's more, I put it in that note last week when she was off. It has nothing to do with this, then. He picked up a two-inch square polythene bag of tin tacks from the coffee table, then poked at a pile waiting to be bagged up. Piecework can take forever, can't it? An extra pair of hands makes all the difference, really lightens the load. She threw down the lighter, scattering tin tacks on the carpet. What are you on about? It's me who does this, on my own. She placed the cigarette between her lips, drawing it hard, then blew a cloud of smoke into his face. Coming round here with your bloody fancy posh voice, accusing me of friggin' knows what, and why, I'd like to know, aren't you in school doing what you're paid to do? Her tired, lined face blazed with insolence. While her manner didn't bother Jonah, it upset Shana, who hadn't said a word. Now she stepped forward. 
Mum, don't shout at him like that. You'll get me into even more trouble. Shut up and leave this to me. But Mum, if you can't be quiet, get out. He's only trying to help. It's his job. Keeping his voice low and smooth, in contrast to Mrs Powell's bullying screech, Jonah rose to his feet and said, I think we've said all we need to, Mrs Powell. You're a busy woman and we have no right to take up any more of your valuable time. Shana, perhaps you'd show us out. Standing at the front room, the volume of the television in the sitting room turned up again. Shana said, Sorry about that, sir. She loses it now and again. He looked at her kindly. It's okay, but Shana, you do have a choice in this. If you see yourself in years to come earning your living from packing tin tacks like your mother, he paused meaningfully, then so be it. But if there's the slightest chance that you might want more out of life, I'd be delighted to see you in school first thing tomorrow morning. Think it over. It's your decision, nobody else's. The law says you must attend school in one form or another. But nobody has the right to bully you into making the wrong decision. Not me, not your mother, not even Mrs Lander here. The girl put a finger to her lower lip, pushed it against her teeth, chewed at it anxiously. I'll... I'll see you then, sir. Soon, I hope. The door closed slowly behind them, and when they were driving away, Barbara Lander said, Creeping bloody ivy. So it is true what they say about you. You were as slick as an oiled eel. Do you think so? Oh, you know so. The moment that horrible woman started attacking you, the daughter leaped to your defence, just as you knew she would. Me, I'd have blown it by throwing the letter of the law at the mother and getting both their backs up. But not you. You cunningly got the girl on your side. And if there isn't a tick by her name in the register tomorrow morning, I'll cover your lunch duty for the rest of the term. And it's two whole weeks until half term. How very generous of you. However, the hard part will be ensuring we keep her at school. She'll need a lot of support to stand up to that mother of hers. And we don't want to cause so many ways that the heavy brigade get brought in. That would be totally counterproductive. He slowed down to let a car pull out in front of him. It had come from the road where Jace lived, and Jonah was almost tempted to take a detour and see how he was getting on. Year 11 was officially on home study leave for their GCSEs. The first of the history papers was set for next Tuesday, and Jonah was giving an 11th hour revision lesson on Monday after school. Jace had said he would be there, but would he? Shuffling through his collection of dusty cassettes and not looking too impressed with his choice of music, Barbara was a country and western devotee. She said, I'm intrigued, Jonah. Where did you learn to deal so effectively with bullies? He smiled wryly. It comes from being a coward. I don't like confrontation. I prefer to disarm rather than mobilise the tanks of aggression. Of course, it had nothing to do with growing up at Mermaid House. That evening he stayed on at school to do some marking, but instead of going home straight away when he'd finished, he drove to Mermaid House. He was concerned about his father. Since the miraculous Miss Costello had moved on, Gabriel had been morose. Only a fool would think that her influence had been restricted to overhauling an uncared-for house. Jonah knew that it had gone much further than that. She had touched Gabriel Liberty in a way that few people ever had. Amazingly, she'd made him happy. But what worried Jonah most was that his father's trademark fighting spirit had dwindled to nothing. 
He had mentioned this to Casper on the phone, but all his brother had said was, Well, it was bound to happen at some time or other. He can't go to his grave snapping and snarling. We'd never get the lid down on him. For pity's sake, Casper, how can you talk like that? He's our father. He's also a miserable old man who won't listen to a word of common sense and who, I might add, took malicious pleasure in making me look a fool over that Costello woman. Jonah had put his brother out of his misery about their father supposedly marrying for the third time. Predictably, Casper's anger had been cataclysmic. I thought you might have been relieved, Jonah had reasoned. Relieved? He despises me so much that he had to humiliate me in front of a complete stranger. Are you mad? And why do you always have to miss the bloody point? Changing tack and hoping to move on to safer ground, Jonah had said, So how's business? But the ground had opened up beneath him. And what the hell do you care about my business? Casper had sniped. Since when have you ever cared about anything I do? Okay, I'm only asking. Well, don't. Take your snivelling civility and stick it. Jonah had ended the conversation by putting the phone down quietly. There was nothing to be gained from talking with his brother when he was in that kind of mood. He didn't hear from Casper in the following weeks, which meant that he was no longer under any pressure to do his bidding. There had been no further mention of selling Mermaid House. Their father had made it clear that there would be no question of it. But privately, Jonah still thought it was the right thing to do. It was still light when he arrived at Mermaid House and he found his father in the gun room, locking the glass-fronted cabinet. Bloody crows, he said, pocketing the key. They've been at the lambs again. Vermin. Should be wiped off the face of the earth. What brings you here and what's that smell? It's this. He held up a paper carrier bag. Indian takeaway. Thought you might fancy a change from your usual bean feast. Gabriel eyed the bag suspiciously. You did, did you? It'll need heating up in the oven for a short while. Shall I see to it? Feel free. A week had passed since Jonah had last called in, and he was relieved to see, as he slid the foil packages inside the oven, that his father was still keeping the place relatively clean and tidy. There were no feminine touches of flowers or tablecloths, but the kitchen was still hygienically sound. Any luck with finding a cleaner? he asked, bending down to a cupboard for two plates, then opening the cutlery drawer. He knew that Gabriel had placed an advert in the local paper. No. Word's probably gone round the whole of Derbyshire that I'm a no-go area. Drink? Thanks, but only a small one. I'll add some water. Despite his father's look of disapproval, he took the tumbler of whisky over to the sink. He ran the cold tap for a while, then added an inch to the glass. He noticed the postcards lined up along the windowsill and looked at the latest edition. He picked it up and turned it over to see where it had come from. I see the Costellos are in Whitby, he said, his back still to Gabriel. Didn't you go there with your father when you were a boy? How much longer is this mill going to take? Acknowledging that prizing any information out of his father about the past was as productive as trying to squeeze blood out of a stone, he replaced the card on the sill. Another five minutes should do it. He raised his glass. Cheers. While they ate, Jonah kept up the conversation as well he could, but it was hard going. His father was even more uncommunicative and morose than usual. For something to say, he told him about Shana and her mother. Sounds like you're wasting your time there, Gabriel said, picking at his food uninterestedly. If people don't want help, you can't force it on them. Jonah looked up from his chicken korma. 
So you think they should be left to dig themselves a deeper hole from which there's no hope of them ever climbing out? Gabriel lowered his gaze. I didn't say that. So what do you mean? You have to wait until people are ready to accept your help, or ask for it. Go blundering in as a self-appointed champion of the underdog with scant regard for anyone's feelings, and you'll find yourself up against a brick wall. But not everyone knows how to ask for help. True, but maybe in the end they do. His father pushed his plate away. Jonah hadn't expected the conversation to take this turn, and he steeled himself to ask, Dad, who are we really talking about here? Disadvantaged teenagers, or or you? As soon as the words were out, he regretted them. Gabriel glowered at him, his thick eyebrows drawn together, his mouth set so firmly that his lips had all but disappeared. Oh God, he recognised that look. He'd seen it a million times and felt the consequences. Why couldn't he have kept quiet? But when his father spoke, his voice was anything but firm, anything but recognisable. It shook almost as much as the knobbly hand that reached clumsily for the glass of whisky. I I would have thought that was patently obvious, Jonah. It was madness to go any further, but with the thought of Miss Costello's parting words echoing in his head about the shotgun approach and laying out one's demands, he felt compelled to force his father just once to be honest with him. Are you saying what I think you're saying, that you want my help but don't know how to ask for it? The heavily loaded question trapped them in a long, silent pause and they stared at each other across the table. It was as if they were frozen with fear. Then, to Jonah's horror, his father's eyes were swimming with tears. Dad? Jonah rose from his chair uncertainly. He could cope with irate, boo-sodden parents threatening him and thuggish students disparaging him. That was a breeze. But this? His father crying? Dear God, what had he done? He moved slowly round the table, every step filling him with alarm and confusion. His father's tears were flowing freely now. His body had slumped forward, his head was in his hands, and his breathing was coming in sharp, noisy gulps. Jonah bent down to him cautiously, and for the first time in his life he placed a tentative hand on his father's shoulder, expecting it to be pushed away roughly, to be told, Don't touch me! But there was no rejection. Gabriel turned into him, rested his head against his shoulder and continued to weep. Words streamed out of him, but Jonah could make no sense of them. It didn't matter, though. Understanding would come later. For now, comforting his father was all that was needed. Chapter 39 Gabriel woke with a start. There was something, someone, in his room. He sat bolt upright. A shadowy figure was coming towards him. Dad, are you all right? Jonah? I've brought you a cup of tea. How are you feeling? Did you sleep okay? Painful rush of adrenaline that had coursed through his veins now abandoned him and a heaviness, not unlike a hangover, pushed Gabriel back against the pillows. Through dry, gritty eyes, he watched Jonah draw the curtains, letting sunlight spill into the room. He blinked at the brightness. Why are you here? he croaked. His throat felt as if it had been sandblasted, and his voice sounded distant, not like it normally did. Nothing made sense, and forcing his brain to battle its way through the lethargy that was consuming him, he wondered if he had been drugged. 
but who would have done that to him? Jonah came and sat on the bed. There was an expression on his face that made him look different somehow. Something in the eyes, the mouth too. It was something oddly familiar, something that made Gabriel's heart miss a beat and made him inexplicably want to cry. Overwhelmed, confusion closed in and he felt as weak as a baby. He swallowed hard, but his mouth was so parched he couldn't. Panic-stricken, he was terrified suddenly that something awful had happened to him while he slept. He sat forward so that he was eye to eye with Jonah. He gripped his son's hands and drew a deep, shuddering breath. Jonah, has something happened to me? Tell me the truth, have I had a stroke? I feel different, strange, not myself. Am I making sense to you? Dad, calm down, you're fine. But the frown on Jonah's face only made him think he was being lied to. The truth, he demanded. Tell me why I feel so strange and why you're here. Don't you remember last night? What about last night? You were, you were very upset. Was I? What about? The frown deepened. We were having supper together. We were talking and, Dad, do you really not remember? But suddenly Gabriel did have a glimmer of recall. You brought an Indian meal. We were talking about somebody called Charlene. Sharna, she's one of my pupils. He waved aside the interruption. His befuddled brain had started to piece together the bits of the jigsaw and he didn't want it to be put off by unnecessary details. Not when he could feel a new disturbing emotion going inside him. Finally, like a wreck being raised out of the water, it surfaced and he recognised it as shame. He groaned, remembering vaguely that something had caused him to lose control in the kitchen. Appalled, he closed his eyes. How had that happened? He concentrated hard and saw himself bent over the table, heard himself howling. Then he recalled his younger son holding him and later helping him upstairs to bed. And all the while he was blethering like a lunatic. But even as he felt the debilitating shame of what he had done and could recall the reasons why, he sensed a closeness to Jonah that he couldn't explain. He knew, though, that he could never talk about it to him. He would never be able to find the right words. And there was always the danger that if he tried, he might lose control again. He jerked his eyes open and said in his firmest voice, I think it would be better all round if neither of us referred to last night again. He saw hesitation in Jonah's face. What was left of his dignity lay in his son's hands and Gabriel willed him to do as he had asked. Do this small thing for me, Jonah, he urged. Is that really what you want, Dad? Jonah asked. Yes, it is. But... But what? You don't think we ought to talk about what happened? No, I don't. Okay, he said soothingly. If that's what you want, that's fine by me. Relieved, Gabriel sank back into the softness of the pillows. He was home and dry. The relief was as potent as the earlier rush of adrenaline had been. Jonah passed him his tea and as their eyes met, his son smiled and suddenly Gabriel wasn't so sure that he was home and dry. He knew that smile so well, had loved it. A hot wave of panic flooded him. His heart thudded painfully in his chest and his hands shook so much that he had to put the mug on the bedside table. He wanted to speak but couldn't. Consumed with the absurd need to weep on his son's shoulders again, he summoned up all his strength, heaved himself out of bed and blundered blindly from the room. His head spinning, frightened he was going to be sick, he locked himself into the bathroom and sat on the edge of the bath. He pressed his clenched fists to his eyes and wept as silently as he could. God in heaven, why had it taken him almost 35 years?
to see just how like his mother Jonah was. Chapter 40 The May sunshine had warmed the wooden bench Archie was sitting on, which helped to relax him a little. He wasn't a jumpy man, but today his nerves were shot to pieces, which was crazy. He was only meeting Stella, for heaven's sake, a woman he'd known for most of his adult life. But perhaps he hadn't ever really known her. If he had, surely he wouldn't be sitting here in Buxton, in the pavilion gardens, waiting to meet her so they could discuss their divorce in a civilised and amicable manner. It had seemed the right thing to do when he had written to Stella earlier in the month, and it had still seemed right when she had penned a hurried note last week to say she couldn't make it that day after all, but would the following Tuesday be okay? He had sent a note back saying it would be fine, but now it felt anything but fine. What would they say to each other? Would they argue and cause an unpleasant scene that would play right into the solicitor's hands? The sun and nervous energy were making him sweat. He unbuttoned his cuffs and rolled up his sleeves. He was ten minutes early and he watched the people around him enjoying themselves. Picnic blankets were laid out on the grass where cool bags, discarded socks and shoes had been scattered and groups of tiny children, their lips and clothes stained with ice lolly juice, squealed and laughed while their mothers chatted. Through the leafy trees and down by the lake, where ducks were being fed chunks of processed bread, the miniature train rattled along its narrow gauge track, whistling. In the shade of an oak tree, a girl and a boy were oblivious to the world around them as they kissed. He sighed. Oh, what a world it was, at one minute so beautiful and full of golden opportunities, and at the next hopelessly confusing and fraught with difficulties. Archie? He started. Stella! He got to his feet. Was it really her? Surprise must have been stamped all over his face. Self-consciously, she patted her short, flicked-back hair. I'm still getting used to it, she said. But the dramatic change in hairstyle and colour, from mousy grey to harsh teak, wasn't the only thing that was different. She had lost weight, more than a stone. And since when had she had such long nails? They must be false. She'd never been able to get hers to grow. She'd always complained they were too brittle. The jewellery was new too, and there was too much of it, he thought. Gifts from the new man in her life, perhaps. The silky overshirt covered a camisole top that was low at the front, and between her breasts an amber pendant he didn't recognise caught the sunlight. She changed the colour of her lipstick too. It was darker, too red. It gave her teeth a yellowed appearance. You're looking great, he said. You too. They sat down and Archie cringed at how easily she could lie. He knew he looked far from well. Only that morning when he'd been shaving he had noticed the unhealthy pallor of his skin and the extra lines and shadows around his eyes. How's the shop going? Pride made him want to say that business was booming, that since she'd gone the money had poured in, that he spent every evening counting his newfound booty and devising ways to spend it. A yacht here, a second home there. And that was when he wasn't fighting off the women. Oh yes, all the gorgeous young women he'd had in his life since he'd become a single man. Banging on his door they were. Oh, same as ever, was all he said, thinking that this was the answer his circumspect solicitor would expect of him. Make the shop sound too profitable, Mr Merriman, and she'll want a cut of that too. 
Business is up and down, he added, further obliging the lawyer in his mind. And your mother? A little better. No thanks to you, he wanted to say, with an uncharacteristic spurt of malice. Oh, this was no good. They wouldn't get anywhere if he carried on like this. What was done was done. Bitterness wouldn't help either of them. Do you fancy an ice cream? he asked, catching sight of a tot leaning forward in his pushchair, trying to grasp the cornet his mother was keeping at a safe distance. I shouldn't really, she said, smoothing out a crease in her skirt, then crossing her legs and revealing a shapely calf. I'm on a diet. She made it sound like it was the in thing to be doing, but over in cosmopolitan Macclesfield, that's what everyone was up to. Oh, sure I can't tempt you? Not even a small one? She shook her head. Not one hair moved, he noticed. But don't let me stop you. Childishly, he took her words as a challenge and strode off to the nearest ice cream cellar. With a strawberry cornetto in his hand, he took the return journey more leisurely. Come on, he told himself. Drop the pathetic dumped husband routine and relax, or this meeting will be a waste of time. So what was it you wanted to discuss, she asked, when he joined her on the bench again. He saw her sliding two gold bracelets apart on her wrist so that she could look at her watch. Couldn't she have done that while he'd been gone? And how come she was so cool? He was sweating and squirming like a pig. He moistened his lips and launched into what he wanted to say. This isn't easy for me, Stella, but I just wanted you to know that... that I'm sorry. She looked at him blankly. Sorry? Yes, for not being the husband you needed. I let you down, and this... This awful awkwardness between us seems... Oh, Stella, this coldness between us seems a heck of a price to pay, especially when you think how happy we once were. She continued to stare at him, and in such a way that he wondered if what he'd said hadn't made sense. He opened his mouth to try to make himself clearer. I don't understand, she said, her tone icy. Is this some slick trick of yours to make me feel guilty? Huh? I know what you're doing, Archie. You're clinging to the past. You're trying to... I'm not, he blurted out. I was trying to say that I want you to know I understand. Or rather, I think I understand. Over the years we both changed without either of us realising it and... A high-pitched squeal of laughter distracted him. He turned to see a small child lying on his back, waving his legs in the air as his mother tickled his tummy. Perhaps if we'd had kiddies, things might have been different, he said flatly. This isn't about us not being able to have children, she said pointedly. It's not even about you forcing your mother on me. That really hurt. He tried to respond, but his voice failed him. I'm not coming back, Archie. I thought I'd made that perfectly clear. I have a new life now, one that makes me happy. Happier than I've been in a long while. I only came here to make sure you understood that. He was stunned by her hardness and felt himself shrivel inside. Melting ice cream trickled down his thumb. Stella, I asked you to meet me so that we could try to make things easier between us, to make our divorce less painful. I thought it would give us the chance to go our different ways with a more positive attitude. I don't believe you. You wanted to drag me here to flaunt your forgiveness at me, to make me feel bad about what I did. You always did want to be the good guy, self-righteous Archie Merriman. Well, now you've got what you always wanted. I'm the villain for walking out on you, and you're the hard-done-by man everyone feels sorry for. Her voice was tight with recrimination, 
her words spilling out as though she had been storing them up specially. Suddenly she leapt to her feet. There's nothing to be gained from this. I knew it would be a mistake. And look, she pointed to his left hand accusingly. You're still wearing your wedding ring. You haven't accepted anything at all. Without another word, she wheeled round and marched away. He was dumbfounded. He watched her stride out in the direction of the opera house, her unfamiliar hair bobbing through the strolling holiday makers. Her arms swinging, she veered off course only once to avoid bumping into a man with a pushchair. Then at last she disappeared. Archie thought, if your new life makes you so happy, Stella, why do you look and sound so miserable? He drove home to Deaconsbridge, more confused than when he'd set out. What had she meant by him always wanting to be the good guy? Sure, he liked to be liked. Who didn't? It was human nature to want to get on with other people. The belief that there was good in everyone was at his core. Take that Mr Liberty, for instance. He certainly wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but Clara Costello proved his point perfectly. She had seen someone worth digging for beneath the layers of prickly rudeness, or why else had she put herself out for him? To his surprise, by the time he reached home and was locking the car, he no longer felt so sorry for himself. It was Stella his heart went out to. Her bitterness seemed so much greater than his own. He let himself in at the back door and saw that his mother had managed to peel some potatoes for their supper. A hopeful sign. He went through to the sitting room, where he could hear Emmerdale's theme playing on the television. Hi, Mum, he said, forcing himself to sound carefree and jolly. He had told her where he was going, that he was trying to smooth things out between him and Stella, and he wanted her to think that the meeting had gone well, that he had it all under control now. He reached for the evening paper, which had slipped onto the floor beside her armchair, and passed it to her. It was then, when she made no move to take it from him, that he realised she'd had another stroke. The doctor said there was no need for him to stay. You might just as well go home and get a decent night's sleep in your own bed, she advised. But Archie said no, I wouldn't sleep anyway. The doctor, a woman in her early forties, with a kindly understanding smile, nodded. I thought you'd say that, but do your best to grab the odd nap. We don't want you conking out on us. You look too useful a chap to lose. With the curtain drawn around the bed, screening them off from the rest of the ward, Archie sat alone with his mother while she slept. Except it wasn't a true sleep. She was now in a world where he couldn't reach her. Dr Singh had warned him that a second stroke was on the cards, that it would probably strike within a year of the first, but when it had happened, he had been taken unawares. No use looking for warning signs and symptoms, Dr Singh had said. It'll just make you more anxious, which will make Bessie more anxious. He laid a hand on his mother's and hoped she could feel his touch. He wanted to believe that she knew he was there and that she wasn't facing this alone. With her head turned away from him, she looked just as she always did when she slept. But the other side of her face told a different story. The corner of her mouth was open and looked as if it was waiting to have a pipe or a cigar popped into it. Her eyelid looked as if someone had tied a thread to it, then pulled it down towards her cheek. It was a heartbreaking sight. Still with his hand on hers, he sank back into the chair, tilted his head, closed his eyes and listened to the noises beyond the curtain. Someone was coughing, a dry, tickly cough. Another patient was muttering in her sleep and beyond the ward, voices rose and fell. 
A phone was ringing and hurried footsteps squeaked on the polished floor. This last sound dredged up a pleasant memory for Archie, for his first visit to Mermaid House and Clara Costello's confident step as she had led him the length of the impressive hallway towards the drawing room. As sleep claimed him, he wondered where she was now. What wouldn't he give to pack up his troubles and take to the road? Chapter 41 That night, Clara dreamed she was running. Her legs carried her effortlessly through fields of long, dry, swaying grass. Her feet were bare and a warm breeze blew through her hair. Not short as it was now, but streaming out behind her, and in her arms she carried Ned. There was no weight to him, and together they were almost flying. In the distance there was a hill, and Ned asked her to take him to the top. Their laughter rang out like birdsong as she ran sure-footed up the steep incline. The higher she climbed, the lighter and freer she felt. From the top, where the sun was brighter, the wind keener, they looked down onto a small town. It was Deaconsbridge. There was the church, the bustling market square, Archie's shop and the mermaid cafe. Away from the town and perched on a hill which he had all to himself was a man. He was waving to them. Standing beside her, Ned clapped his hands. Mummy, there's a man waving to us. Is it Mr Liberty? Has he come to see us? But as she shielded her eyes from the glare of the sun, she caught Ned by the hand and started running again. Down the hill, her feet scarcely touching the ground beneath them. That's not Mr Liberty, she cried, the wind tossing her words over her shoulder. That's your father. She woke violently from the dream, her heart racing. That was twice now she had dreamed of Todd. Didn't you get to know TMA during your stint in Wilmington? How innocently Guy had typed those words, never once thinking they would have such an effect on her. How hard it had been to email him back and say casually, Oh, I met him once or twice, and yes, you'd better keep him safe from the women on the packing line. It was stupid of her, really, but she should have guessed that Todd would be assigned to visit the plant and oversee the buyout. It was part of his job. She wondered if he was anxious about bumping into her. Probably not. She was measuring the depth of his response by her own, which couldn't be the same. He didn't know that their brief love affair had created Ned. Since she had returned from Wilmington, she had observed his progress within the organisation from company reports and morale-boosting in-house magazines. She had also tuned in discreetly to any snippets of transatlantic gossip that buzzed around the plant. But last year she had been brought up short when she had unexpectedly come across him in the pages of the Financial Times. It had been an article about Phoenix's latest rise in profits after the US drug regulator had given the green light to its new antidepressant drug. But all she had been interested in was the photograph that showed the company finance director. It was clearly an up-to-date picture because he was wearing glasses, which he hadn't needed when she had known him. Two thoughts had occurred to her as she looked at the photograph. The frameless glasses suited Todd, and she would need to check Ned's vision as he grew older. She straightened the duvet and turned onto her side, knowing that sleep would elude her for a while yet. She wished there was someone in whom she could confide. For more than four years she had kept her own counsel, and convinced herself that she would never have to deal with Todd again. She supposed it said a lot about her controlling nature, that she had believed she could wrap things up so tidily. 
But now, because she knew Todd would be soon arriving in England, her voice was asking if she had done the right thing in keeping the truth about Ned from him. Her intentions had been good, though. She hadn't wanted to jeopardise the relationship he needed to rebuild with his wife and daughters. But would it have been fairer to give him the facts and let him decide what to do? And would he be angry if he were to find out about Ned that he had been denied the right to know his son? That was what worried her most. Even so, part of her was convinced that it would be better to go on keeping Todd in the dark. What the eye didn't see, the heart couldn't miss. But what if he discovered that Clara Costello had jacked in her job to spend more time with her son? She could imagine the conversation all too well. She has a son. When did she marry? An awkward pause. Oh, not married? How old is the child? When he had done the sums, would he track down those to whom she had been closest at work and through them seek her out? And that was where the need to talk to somebody came in. Should she confess to her friends so that Guy and David could be on their guard for any unfortunate slip of the tongue and prime them to lie about Ned's age? She knew that to expose them to such a secret wasn't fair. No, her only hope was to carry on as before and pray that Todd wouldn't ask after her. He hadn't up until now, had he? But the next morning Clara was tempted to phone Louise. She thought she would go mad if she didn't confide in someone. The need to be told that she had done the right thing, that no blame could be apportioned to her, was so great she could think of nothing else. But the next morning, Clara was tempted to phone Louise. She thought she would go mad if she didn't confide in someone. The need to be told that she had done the right thing, that no blame could be apportioned to her, was so great she could think of nothing else. Ironically, it was Ned who provided her with the means to stand firm. With him around, there was no opportunity for her to make such a telephone call. After breakfast, and following a lengthy, fun-filled washing-up session, they left the campsite in Pateley Bridge, which had been home for the last three days, while they had toured Ripon, Harrogate and Skipton, and set off for Haworth. This was primarily Clara's choice. She had always wanted to see where the Bronte sisters had lived, but there were plenty of things to interest Ned too. A trip on a steam train run by the Keeley and Worth Valley Railway. And a visit to Eureka, the museum for children in Halifax. They might even drive over to Leeds to see the armoury. Education as well as entertainment was the order of their trip. She had been worried that Ned would tire of being a perpetual tourist, but they had yet to encounter boredom. The trick, it seemed, was to provide a wide-ranging variety of places to visit as well as allow themselves occasional days of doing nothing, so that they could relax and catch their breath. They did this when they were fortunate enough to find themselves on campsites with plenty of facilities. A swimming pool, preferably indoor, a play area, a woodland trail, a crazy golf course. One place they had stopped in at Northumberland, not far from Bamber Castle and Holy Island, had had its own tempin bowling alley, and they had spent a hilarious afternoon trying not to drop cannonballs, as Ned called them, on their toes. They arrived at the Haworth campsite shortly after twelve. They checked in and hooked up to the electricity supply. As they had already stocked up on groceries, fresh milk, a loaf of wholemeal bread, some Edam for Ned, Stilton for her, and a bag of treats, chocolate fingers, crisps and a bar of fruit and nut, they decided to have lunch. It was warm enough to sit outside, and while they ate, Ned kept his eye on a family a few pictures away. 
Two small girls were laughing at their father as he danced around like a gorilla with a rubber mallet in his hands. Their mother looked on, amused, as she brushed grass off a large plastic ground sheet. Clara watched Ned closely. What was going through his mind as he took in this ubiquitous family unit? Did he ever feel he was missing out in some way? Inevitably, Ned had inquired early on in his young life where his father was. The children he mixed with at nursery school seemed to have one, if not two, in their lives. There were plenty of stepfathers on the scene. Clara had been dreading this question, but had believed she would wing it when it surfaced. Ever since Ned had started to talk, Clara's mother had been on at her to devise a reasonable explanation, saying that it wouldn't be fair to Ned to be anything but honest. She'd also been concerned that Ned might ask her the crucial question, and she had needed to know what she should say. It had crossed Clara's mind, and for no more than a nanosecond, to say that his father was dead, but the consequences of such a lie were too awful to contemplate. As were those of saying she didn't know who his father was. In the end, she had told him the truth, or as near to it as she could. She had explained that sometimes adults had to make difficult decisions, and the hardest one she had had to make was to bring him up on her own, because his father lived a long way away and wasn't able to be a real father to him. She had waited for him to probe deeper, but the questions didn't come. He seemed satisfied with what he had, and once more she put his happiness down to the fact that he was blessed with wonderful grandparents and other people who truly cared for him. She didn't fool herself that she could get away so lightly for much longer, though. The older he became, the more inquiring he would grow, and in turn she would have to be more honest with him. As his mother, that was her responsibility. As her son, it was his right. Howarth was beautiful. Surrounded by deserted, unspoilt moors, it was easy to conjure up the brooding sense of melancholy conveyed in Emily Bronte's classic novel. Windswept moors, abandoned hope, neglect and decay, it was all here. It was a place of pilgrimage for anyone whose heart had ever been broken. The long walk up to Top Withens, reputedly the ruins of the house that had inspired Emily's Wuthering Heights, almost defeated Ned, and Clara had to carry him for a short while, but afterwards they rewarded themselves with tea in a pretty cafe in the steep main street of Howarth. Fortified by strong tea, with lots of milk in it for Ned, and flowery scones, homemade raspberry jam, and cream as thick as butter, they joined a guided tour of the parsonage where the Bronte family had lived. Then they dawdled through the leafy graveyard, where they had played an impromptu game of hide-and-seek. Ned was easy to find. He always had a foot or an elbow sticking out from the lichen-coated headstone he was giggling behind. They had a leisurely snoop through the gift shops. It was still early in the season and the vast crowds of sightseers were yet to invade and found some beautiful handcrafted wooden toys. Ned picked out a funny little acrobat who swung his brightly painted body when the sides of the toy were squeezed and they added to their collection of postcards, as they did in every place they visited. Clara had also bought herself a copy of Wuthering Heights. It was years since she'd read the book, and apart from being a perfect memento of the day, it would be a nostalgic treat. Ned went to bed early that night, worn out, and while he slept, Clara read. When she'd finished the first chapter, she laid it aside and fished out the tapestry kit she'd bought in Glasgow. She'd never tried tapestry before, condemning it as a time-wasting occupation for those with not enough to do. 
but she found the repetitive motion of pushing the needle in and out of the canvas oddly relaxing. It was also addictive. The steady process of producing neat rows of orderly stitches had its own appeal for her. She studied what she'd done so far, trying to make up her mind which piece of the intricate pattern to do next, and settled for the bottom right-hand corner, where a dusty-skinned Victorian plum had rolled away from the bowl of fruit that made up the majority of the design. She selected a length of wool, threaded it, and thought, as she made the first stitch, how like the plum she was. She too had rolled away from what had been the mainstay of her life, her career. The decision had not been taken lightly, but it made her smile to think how dramatically different her life had become. Here she was, in a second-hand camper van, surrounded by stunningly picturesque scenery, spending her evening sewing while her son slept. She had never felt so full of energy. The closeness she now had with Ned was truly uplifting. But who was this rejuvenated Clara Costello, who had been so happy to let go of her old life? And where did she see herself in the months ahead, when it was time for Ned to embark upon his 16-year sentence of scholastic hard labour? Did she really want to slip back into the rat race she had left behind, and become again the frazzled woman she had allowed herself to turn into? Was there something she would rather do? She rethreaded her needle. What did she want to do? She felt confident that she could resume her career, more or less where she had left it. Maybe not with Phoenix, but there were plenty of other pharmaceutical companies. The all-important question, though, was, did she want to pick up where she'd left off? Perhaps it was time to change direction and do something new. Not so long ago, she would have been annoyed and frustrated that she couldn't find an answer to this, but now she was content to take each day as it came. It was enough to be happy with what she had right now. And because she had never been a spendthrift, she had sufficient funds to tide them over for some time yet. Come the new year, she would have to get a job and start bringing in a decent salary again. But that was months away. It wasn't even June, and they had the whole of the summer stretching gloriously ahead of them. Three wonderful months of come what may. How lucky she was. It was when she was lying in bed, having just turned out the light, that her thoughts slipped back to where they had been first thing that morning. Todd. All at once her anxiety about him returned. It was a warm night and with several windows open she tossed and turned for nearly an hour listening to noises from their fellow campers. A dog barking, a car door slamming, a kettle whistling. Before long the surge of worry turned into a thumping headache and knowing she would never get a decent night's sleep if she didn't take something she slipped out of bed and opened the locker above the cooker. It was too high for Ned to reach and she kept in it the first aid kit and the bottle of paracetamol. It wasn't easy to find in the semi-darkness, not with all the important documents she had stored in there, the vehicle insurance details, her checkbook and building society passbook and a file of other essential records. She continued to rummage for the paracetamol. She pushed aside a bulging A4 envelope and her mobile phone. Then she found something large and bulky that she didn't recognise. Then, with a flash of guilt, she realised what it was. The tied-up bundle of Val Liberty's diaries. She let out a smothered moan of self-reproach. How many times had she made a mental note not to forget to put them back? And lifted the notebooks down from the locker. Despite herself, she couldn't resist the pull of Val's storytelling. She found the paracetamol, slipped back into bed, 
switched on the overhead light and flipped through Val's last diary. Scanning the pages for something of interest, her eyes were drawn to the final entry. The writing was a lot less sure than it had been on previous pages. She must have known she was dying when she wrote this. To whoever is reading this, and it will probably be Jonah, he is the only one who would be interested. All I ask is that you give my diaries to Gabriel when I am dead and ask him to read them. I know he won't sort through my things, just as he didn't with Anastasia, but I do so badly want him to know that in my own way I did love him. There was so much unsaid in our marriage, so much that needed saying, that this is perhaps the only way I will be able to communicate my feelings to a man who has been too hard on his family, but mostly too hard on himself. He wasn't able to offer his children the love and affection they needed, for the simple fact one can't give what one hasn't got. A broken heart is exactly that, a broken vessel with the love drained out of it. I've tried to give a fair picture of life at Mermaid House, and though Gabriel might not like what I've said, I want him to know that he has to forgive everyone he thinks has let him down. He needs to forgive himself and be reconciled with the truth that all any of us can ever do is our very inadequate best. There were tears in Clara's eyes as she closed the book. It wasn't so much the poignancy of the words that touched her, but all the blank pages that followed. She turned out the light and knew that she had no choice but to return the diaries to their owner. And, just as surely, she knew that the task had to be performed in person. There could be no cheating, no sending them anonymously in the post. She had no idea how she was going to explain to Gabriel why. She had borrowed them. As Clara and Ned have been exploring places new, it's been an emotional time for Gabriel. Their presence has awoken him from the numbing cloud of grief he's existed in for so long and made him look at his life and family with new insight. Clara, finding herself in an internet cafe, emails Guy at work for gossip and his innocent comment sends her into turmoil. Todd Mason Angel, Ned's father, is over on a business trip. Didn't you get to know TMA during your stint in Wilmington? Guy asks. What does this mean for Clara now? Will she meet Todd? Should she tell him about Ned? We'll find out more next time. Thanks for listening.